What is up, everybody? Welcome back. Run Your Mouth Podcast. We are back, and man, do we have a packed episode for you today. You know why we got a packed episode? Because I kept taking notes. I kept seeing fun things. I kept seeing things in the news, things that were important, things I wanted to talk about, but I've been roaming the country. I've been driving down the I-95s, going south, then I'm going north, then I'm going into New York City, then I'm doing all sorts of spots, so we've been busy. But today, we've got a jam-packed episode brought to you by Yo Cranum, home of the $60 kilo, and sheathunderwear.com, the most supportive underwear You'll find, you know, you, you might've thought you found a wife that was supportive. You just wait till you get your balls into these sacks. And speaking of which I want to get right into it. I've got some, I've got some big ass topics and I came across something yesterday that made me feel so good about myself because, all right, listen, there've been some news topics, some things where we took a counter point of view to anybody else and, uh, in incredible fashion, we managed to get it right. That's what happened. You look at Corona, we were vindicated. You look at uh, Russia collusion, we were vindicated. But I've been vindicated from one of the biggest things that uh, lifestyle choices I've made in my entire life. And a recent uh, Harvard study came out that uh, jerking off's good for you. So if you went to your Bible camp, you met with a priest, anyone in your life's been telling you that you should feel ashamed about the porn you watch or the semen that you lay onto your carpet, I tell you that you should stand up in pride in your office and you should say, I support the health of my prostate. And if you as an individual are going to shame me from uh, from uh, removing semen from my body that would be harmful to my prostate health, how many religious individuals are going to end up with ass cancer because someone shamed them into keeping the semen inside of their body? We all knew that it was supposed to be on the outside of our bodies. We intuitively knew that. We understood it. It was human nature. They're like, this shit, there's all this stuff inside of me. I better get this out of me. And, and we understood that. We're like, it even feels good when I get it out of me. That's my body telling me that this, this thing that's inside of me is supposed to be out of me right now. And then every once in a while, you would just pop a boner and be your brain telling you, hey, listen, there's more stuff inside of you. You better get that stuff outside of you. You're basically a cum-making factory of your brain and hormones letting you know white goo on the inside should be on the outside. And then for some reason, external forces were coming around. You get neuroscientists, you get religious individuals. They're like, you better keep that, you better keep that stuff inside of you because that's where your energy and motivation comes from. And you keep taking that stuff that's on the inside and you put it on the outside, unless it's with uh with the wife that you're married with and, and, and trying to produce kids, well then shame on you. And it turns out those people are getting prostate cancer. So, you know, it's just nice every once in a while when uh you can turn around and go, Oh, looks like I was right. And, and pay it forward to the next generation of teenagers and let them know, hey, you, you don't jerk off on the regular. I need you on a three or four time a day schedule. That's doctor's order. You don't want to be one of these people who maybe is only going at this once a week and ends up with prostate cancer. Is that what you want from your life? You want to be one of these people who wasted their opportunity of prime boners not jerking off and then turned around at age 72 and realized that it was nothing but prostate cancer? Is that what you want from your life, young man? All right, let's take a look at the article. And I just want to let everybody know that if there's ever an article from Harvard um, talking about um, semen volume, big loads, uh, or a professor who gets up there and goes, listen, we've been doing research on prostates and we want to talk to everyone about uh, the, the, the frequency of your ejaculations, you send me that article every single time. Robsnewsroom at gmail.com. I don't want to ever... Uh, miss out on the latest Harvard studies and jerking off ever. That is not that. So please, you you come across one of these articles every single time. Uh, you got to You got to send me an email. So let's let's take a look. This is fresh from Harvard. Uh, ejaculation frequency and prostate cancer. Um, the Harvard ejaculation study. And then here here was the uh, initial place that I saw this from is from something called Joe. And I just want to give you guys the numbers so that, you know, you can invest in your health as much as I do. But um, pinpointing precisely how many times men should be ejaculating each month, the panel of researchers said that 21 will protect you from prostate cancer. So essentially, you want to be jerking off once a day. And if every once in a while you get caught up at your day job, you don't have time to go to the bathroom and crank one out, then it's okay. You know, it's only 21 days. You can have an off day. It's basically two... Uh, well, like one off day a week or so, uh, you know, just err on the safe side. We want we want our listeners to to be healthy. So, you know, uh, basically once a day uh, keeps the prostate cancer away. So thank you, Harvard, for coming through with this information that I will make it my duty to share with the world. 
Uh, another thing, because, you know, we're taking men's health upon, our, upon ourselves. Uh, it seems like every category, I'm a lady and we're going to be fierce ladies. And this is the way ladies should operate. So we'll be the men's club because there aren't that many women listening anyways. But if you're here, I do want to make you feel welcome. You should feel welcome. But we're going to give some tips to men health, men's health. And um, getting cool will uh, we'll, we'll catch up to you. So not only should you be jerking off more, you should stop being cool before it's too late. We've already had recent stories of uh, actors running themselves over with snow plows. Then we've got uh, um, congressmen trying to cut down their own trees and chainsaw off their own legs. And then we got Jay Leno, fresh out of the hospital. He's out there, rich dude, still wants to work on his cars. He could just pay mechanics, but he still wants to be a dude. He wants to work on his own cars, ends up with a flamethrower right in his face, gets out of the hospital, and he goes, you know what, I'm still going to be riding on my motorcycle. Then he gets clotheslined, and he breaks his thing, and that's the thing. Sometimes you just got to see, you got to stop being cool before it's too late because sometimes there's a cool, you're cool. Your kid, you're cool. You can get away with it. You can smoke your cigarettes. You can drink late at night. You can be on your motorcycle. But at some point that shit turns, being cool turns on you. And then being cool turns not cool because your body can't actually handle it. So I'm just letting everyone know, jerk off and be not cool while you can invest in healthy habits while you're young. All right, here we go. Uh, oh, uh, and then before we get into any uh, real news topics, um, you know that uh, that dude who was uh, dating the 30-year-old TV star who actually looked like a nine-year-old? Well, apparently they broke up, um, and people should be keeping tabs on this guy because it's only a matter of time before he actually finds real kids. So, you know, it, you, you won the fucking lottery, buddy. You got a weird disposition where a handsome guy who's also not English, but he seems to come off like English royalty for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Um, you know, you, you, you won the lottery, man. That that was that was your pick. That was a gift from God. God was like, listen, you're handsome enough. I'll give you the one piece of pedophile action that you're allowed to have legally, even though it's weird and everyone's going to look at you weird. But at least you get to, 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 to find the thing that you were looking for and no one else gets to have because the other pedophiles aren't as good looking as you are. And uh, he blew it. So keep the tabs on that guy. All right. Now let's get into a quick rundown of all of last week's uh, biggest topics. Um, let's start with Project Veritas. Uh, me and Dave did a long episode about that on part of the problem. After we did that episode, footage came out of. And by the way, I, I don't think I've talked about this yet on, on part of the problem. I mean, on uh, on uh, run your mouth. But if I did. I don't know. Things become a big ass fucking blur. So hopefully I'm not repeating myself. Um, all right. So you had the Project Veritas video that came out. I've trashed Project Veritas in the past. I'll give you the guys the short rundown of why I find uh, that I don't like Project Veritas. Um, one, and we're going to do this quickly because I think I might be repeating myself. One, it's like a fucking clickbait article where they go the top 10 things. Then I got to keep clicking through and clicking through and clicking through and clicking through to find the information. Just fucking give me the fucking storyline. We, we, none of us like clickbaiting. We don't like watching the whole thing. And then the fact that the clips get edited up makes it a little bit disingenuous. The fucking douchey energy of that host makes it a little bit disingenuous. And then it's like they come out with these storylines that sound like bombshells. And I got to watch the entire thing to find out to what extent it was a bombshell. And then it's the, the creepiest way to get information from people where you go on three dates. You, this is like CIA dark shit where you pretend like you're in love with somebody so you can get them drunk on a date. Because these weren't even first dates. These are third dates. That's what I found out. This was third date. This guy might have already came in that other dude's asshole from Project Veritas multiple times. He might have peed in his mouth and felt like he had a special bond. And now they're on a third date and he's actually opening up a little bit because he thinks he found or he might have been getting his asshole pegged. I don't know if he was the, the comer or the cummed into. I don't know. And I don't know the kind of bonds that gay men feel after doing these things that might expose them to sharing more of their feelings. I, I don't know. But I've watched CIA movies, mostly Homeland. I'm mostly working off of Homeland here, where uh, the crazy blonde lady did this to people, pretending like they were in love, got them to spill some secrets. But at least then the secrets that weren't being spilled weren't being filmed and then just broadcasted on the Internet. So anyways, it's a creepy way to get information from people. All right. So with all that being said, you did get some interesting things. The problem is also when the bombshells come out is that it's already been shit that I've been talking about in news. So it's not really new information. So I guess, yeah, you got a guy from Pfizer who cops the fact that there's a revolving door. Um, and then he also cops the fact that it sounds like uh, Pfizer's engaged in uh, gain of function research. But the general perspective of the way he's talking is, look, we're trying to help people. And I understand that it wouldn't be good PR if most people knew 
that this is the way that we're actually trying to help people. He's not talking about that, hey, we purposely went and made this virus or anything along those lines. So that was the first half, right? Then the second half came out, which I thought was actually more exposing. Because uh, when he finds out he's been filmed, he freaks the fuck out. It's weird to watch because it, it's really like you're watching a rat trapped in a little thing and like being electrocuted and just freaking the fuck out. You rarely see humans just kind of freaking out in the way that this guy's freaking out. Like, right? I mean, you just see the guy. He's fucking going nuts. And um, the first thing I was surprised by is that there isn't just a lawyer that that guy can call. I'm surprised that there isn't like a MIB level response team for the most powerful individuals in the world that if they end up in that situation, they don't just calmly either get up and leave the room. Like, I mean, I guess that's a lower level employee where he's like, oh shit, I'm going to be in, and I'm going to be in trouble with uh, that vampire Burla tomorrow. Like he realizes that he just fucked up with the elites, but I'm surprised that the elites don't let the guy in on the cleanup crew where they go, listen, you might find that you've either come into someone's asshole or asshole or had your asshole come into and you're feeling special love bonds only to find out that it was James O'Keefe and his film crew. And then you said some dumb shit in the event of that happening. Here's the cleanup crew. Say fucking nothing. Don't freak out. Just confidently call this number and our cleanup crew will be right on site with a team of lawyers that make sure that that video never sees the light of day. We will cut the check necessary. So I'm a little bit surprised that uh, sometimes the uh, these evil elites don't uh, don't seem to have more of a little bit of a suave to them. Uh, but the part that made that guy and I know that this is very um, like uh, alternate way of thinking. But when he goes, when he realizes what happens and he goes, I'm literally a liar. I'm on a date right now and I am literally lying just so I can get laid. That's when I that's when I'm like, oh, this guy really is a sociopath. And that he acknowledged the situation and he realized that that was the one thing to say that could kind of cover his ass. And so he played that card. He was smart enough to realize that just saying that he was lying and that in disowning it, like that's when I was like, oh, this guy kind of is a smart uh, sociopath. All right. And then speaking of which, that I was shocked by the fact that, um, uh, what was I about to say? I got distracted by the comments so we could take a couple quick comments. We've got Shauna Thornton. Um, do we know how much the Moderna variety vaccine? I've only heard about Pfizer and Johnson Johnson. And then, wow, my spelling is awesome at 745 in the morning. There you go. Oh, uh, you know, you know, what I got distracted by. I stopped looking at the comments when I'm ranting. I saw a spelling comment. I was like, is this motherfucker making fun of me for my spelling? Because I don't have to put my notes up here. I put my notes up here so you guys can more easily follow. But if you're going to blast me for my shitty spelling because I didn't really pay attention to school and I was like, grammar, fuck you and your fucking grammar. That was my thought. Even as a little kid, I was like, I don't need to learn about parallel. I'll just write it. I'll just write it. It wasn't a great, wasn't a great approach to life in second grade. You could have just memorized when it was easier to memorize. But I was always just like, nah, not doing that. Whatever they said, I was, nope, nope, nope. And that didn't really serve me well. Anyways, we were trying. We had a good flow. Until Shauna came in, not criticizing my grammar. And then I got defensive because in my own head, I thought that maybe you were pointing out and that was my own low self-esteem. So that, that one's on me, Shauna. All right. And I could just turn off comments. That one's also on me. I literally have the comments in front of me so I can see the comments. I don't have to get distracted by the comments. That's, that's an active choice that I'm making to have the comments in front of me. Why we go? All right. We're talking about how it's surprising that Pfizer doesn't have a better cleanup crew. And so on that note, we did a full breakdown also of the uh, Paul Pelosi hooker incident. It was a live part of the problem podcast from Perryville, Maryland. It will be up, I think, today on YouTube at 4 p.m. Or you can get the uncensored version up on the Gas Digital Network. Uh, subscribe, promo code POTP. And a lot of jokes made over there. Broke down all the footage. We played the footage. We played the audio recordings. We did all that. So we're not going to do that here. Um, there was one thought that I had that I did want to share about it which is, um, and this is a very creepy thought, but perhaps the elites don't really need that much security because they're actually not that at risk. And why are they not that at risk? If we've got a war machine spending uh, trillions of dollars, I believe, on defense spending every single year, and they're telling us that we've got enemies in other countries and that they want to get us at any time, and then if these if our leaders are the people that would be, I guess, most inflammatory to these enemies that we need trillions of dollars in defense spending to keep at bay, you would think that they would walk around and go, oh, I'm somewhat at risk. 
I'm making decisions that affect powerful individuals in foreign countries or even at this country. And it must be that I need security at all time because otherwise these people might be able to get to me or my family and be able to influence decisions. And so you would think that the global elite, they would all, they might not have as much security as the president has, but they would have a pretty good security presence. I mean, even celebrities walk around with security presence. So why is it that these other very wealthy individuals who you would think would be at the most at risk for physical violence from people that were trying to influence either decisions or or to intimidate, you would think that they would have enough security that they would feel that they never had to be intimidated, both because they could afford to do so and because it's a kind of a display of the power of government and politicians if these people are secure. Stated differently, how can it be that we need to spend as much money on defense and we're at such risk of other countries if our leaders can walk around unprotected in unprotected homes at all times. Those two things would seem to me like they would not align. And maybe it's actually that we're not much at risk. Like I even thought about this when the guys from like SEAL Team 6 got out and they're like, we're the ones that killed uh, um, Osama bin Laden. And I was just thinking, well, aren't you a little bit nervous that like if there are still terrorists out there and you're floating out there that you took out their leader, that you might be somewhat in danger. And maybe we're actually very good at keeping people out of the country that we're actually, there aren't that many concerns of terrorists or violent acts against our leaders. And then maybe you even got like the CIA and the NSA and whatever are so good at policing the internet and activities and modes of communication that if for some reason you were to try and plan something or you were trying to get materials or an education about how to facilitate said activities um, be, because of the general surveillance infrastructure, you would be grabbed. I'm still going here. I'm still thinking thoughts. I remember seeing this movie a long time ago. I think it was called Suspect Zero. And it was a very strange, strange movie. And it was about this guy who uh, they thought he was able to like get like premonitions about murders and be able to like draw stuff. I, I really have a very vague memory of this movie. It was something that I'd watch late at night. But one of the things about the movie was that if like murders were random enough, the FBI or, you know, government in general would not have a good way of um, basically uh, preventing or ever catching the person. So if you had a person who was just on the move and they were completely random in the people that they killed, like they just like killing for sport, but they didn't like a particular person. They didn't do it in a particular area. They didn't do it at particular times. It was just some truck driver out there on the road. Well, even that would be a pattern. I guess like if there was something that was so random about the guy's ways of doing it, they would never be able to tie the um, the situations together. They would never be able to catch the people, right? And that got me thinking, perhaps like for the most part, people like the Pelosi's are actually very safe because they have enough systems in place through uh, digital, basically, infrastructure that they're actually not all that concerned. And perhaps when you actually just have legitimately fucking, that's the one thing that you can't really prevent against, is when you legit just have a crazy person, like a crazy person just completely outside of any of the standards or norms in any capacity that like has no agenda, nothing that makes sense, nothing that they could predict for that just goes out and does something. Now, just kind of bullshitting here because the entire situation, the, the video footage is so weird because it doesn't affirm or deny in any way. And I admit there is that little video. I admit the thing with the door that the door to the Pelosi house does seem to open like a creepy door to a mansion where it just I guess if you show up, they're just inviting you in because mostly it's kids coming and, you know, they're dropping off placenta parts. So it's like, well, you know, how much security do they need? The door just opens, come right in, you make your delivery and you walk right out. The door creepily just shuts right behind you. Um, but uh, Paul was, in fact, attacked. The guy did, in fact, go through the back window. He seemed to have camping gear. Doesn't look like a foot, fit hooker. Seems like some fat schlub. Um, so there are oddities in both directions. I mean, it's very odd that the Paul, the Pelosi home isn't better secured. They don't even have ADT security. The cops aren't getting a call about Paul Pelosi and then coming to do a cleanup quicker. 
Um, so it's odd. Didn't affirm or deny either way. And did get me thinking that uh, maybe the elites are a little bit more safely going to sleep at home every night because the digital infrastructure takes care of 99.999% of all things, except it when you have freak occurrences like this, and they'll figure out a new way to prevent it. All right, moving on. I got more things on my on my on my on my quick list. These are supposed to be the quick ones. Um, the not fighting Russia dance goes on. Now we're uh, we're sending tanks over there. Um, you know, keep Ukraine into the fight, pretending like uh, we're going to send them things that are going to help them out, and it's probably just old technology that's going to get blown up pretty quickly. Uh, but hey, we we got to get rid of some equipment. We got equipment just sitting around here. Uh, we need to spend more money on more sophisticated weapons. So we got to do something to get rid of the uh, the old crappy weapons. Uh, kicked in by the cops. That video is pretty horrifying. I'm sure you guys all watched what happened. I think it was, uh, was it Atlanta or it was just in Georgia? Um, and, uh, it's amazing to think about how much cops probably got away with in the time before cameras. Like they're, they're, they're still not adjusted to the fact or aware of the fact that they have a camera right on their chest and that, you know, once the incident's over, they're going to get in trouble. Um, and now I, I do believe that like, if you've ever talked to a guy who was like in the Marines or was like a sniper or like was trained for severe combat situations, um, they do breath exercises. Like they do crazy shit to train their bodies for being in extreme conditions and still being able to control the extreme conditions. And if cops are going to be putting themselves into situations where they are uh, in these put into these extreme situations, they need to be trained for on how to handle it. Um, and so obviously the discussion here should be about the power of the cops uh, and the fact that we shouldn't have these people who are standing above us and can get away with these kind of things. And that it's odd enough that when you looked at the dystopian nightmare of a surveillance state, that there are some ramifications for the state itself and that now their behavior is being captured on video. And so it's hard for it to be, oh yeah, that, that, that guy attacked us. Oh yeah. That guy rammed his car into our cop car. And so we were just acting in self-defense really. Well, there was a camera right on that telephone pole over there. So it's almost odd that the um, exact uh, problem that prevents us from having freedom of the state that you got cameras everywhere. They're probably tracking our every movement. They know where you are at all times type shit. Uh, but at the same note, cops don't seem to be able to get away with what they used to be able to um, get away with. All right. So with all that being said, cops are at fault. There's a good discussion happening about the power of the cops, except for all the idiots that are trying to pretend like that one's still a race issue. It's interesting. The cameras are busting cops for doing this bullshit. Um, I look at those situations and they're tough because firstly, sometimes people don't do a good job of acknowledging you're caught. And so they kind of pull this bitchy whiny card of, I'm just trying to go. Yeah. Well, that's no longer an option. I don't know why you were pulled over. I don't know why the cops are pulling you out of your car, but just crying that, um, like, and kind of not fully complying, not going on to your, like you're, you're caught, you're busted. This thing's over. You don't, you don't just, you're not going to be able to cry. Oh, I'm just trying to get, yeah, yeah. They know that you just want to go home. They're aware of that, but then where it escalates and it turns real like, and this is where like the cops put themselves into this situation. They need to have the proper training and the cops are at fault. So I want to say that cops are 100% at fault, but then you end up in this situation where the cops take action against the person taser or uh, hands on neck, whatever it is to try and restrain the person who's not complying. And then that person can be convinced, oh, these cops are about to kill me. And it could be that the initial intention of the cops are not to kill them. But when you watch video of what happened to George Floyd or otherwise, and cops are being aggressive towards you, you could think, oh, I'm in a life and death situation. And so you take off or you do whatever you can to escape the police. Now, if you can think of the way that you've um, engaged in road rage, where like you, your brain kind of flips, not that I've ever ran my car into someone else, but if you could just think of the way you've yelled at people while you're sitting in the car type thing. Now imagine you're in a cop situation. You've been given a badge. You've been given a gun. You're being put out there. People are supposed to comply with you and that they're not. Now you got like the, the kind of prying at your doodliness. And now you might even think that you're in a dangerous situation because a person's taking off. 
And then you, you think that might escalate. And so then all of a sudden you start doing the thing where you're trying to like you, you're hot and heavy and you feel like you got to teach them a lesson. Once again, cops are wrong for all this. Um, but it, it it's like they almost need to we need to have an understanding of human nature that you can end up in like similar to war situations. That, that's what's so creepy about war. And I think that's partially if I, from what I've talking to soldiers about PTSD is that you realize how fickle human nature is that you can be a nice person until you're put into one situation and you get carried. It's not so much you get carried away. It's like you got adrenaline flowing through you. You're in a war situation and then you do something and you turn around and you're like, Oh, I'm a killer or I will torture someone. Or I will, whatever it is that you did. I've never done any of these things. I've just had conversations with people who've been at war. And I think part of what they walk away from it and the PTSD is realizing, Oh, like, in certain situations, I can behave in a pretty animalistic way. Uh, and so I think I kind of like the starting point is kind of understanding that people can go there and then figuring out how to prevent it. And one of it might be, I don't know, taking away. Like how many times have tasers actually effectively de-escalated a situation? Like, do I, I don't know. I'm not a cop. Maybe it happens all the times where people run into these things. All right. Um, I have quite a few topics that I wanted to rant about and I shall. I shall, but we're going to take a break uh, from uh, from this. We're going to skip ahead a little bit in the episode because I've got a wise expert. So we're going to come back. You guys get a little for watching the video of all the topics that we're going to cover. Uh, but one of the things, and this goes all the way back to um, probably the beginning of the Ukrainian war. Um, I think I, I did a, a longer episode of Liberty Lockdown on this topic, uh, but I always get fascinated with uh, the dollar. Because I think if you look at the U.S. empire and you like we have one. And this is the problem in a way with Bitcoin is that the the, the, the promise of Bitcoin is, hey, it, it, it challenges the U.S. government, but also the, the core product of the U.S. government's dollar. As long as there's dollar demand, they can continue to just like print money like that's the actual product of the U.S. government is the U.S. dollar. That's the thing that kind of they're selling. And as long as people are buying it and by buying it, well, I mean, literally people do buy dollars, but it's basically using the dollar in transactions. The more money they can print, the more that they can send the inflation to other countries. Like the entire system is basically based off of that there's demand for the dollar, which also means that there's confidence in the dollar. And I've had experts come on this show before. And when I go, hey, are we going to end up in a situation where Turkey, Russia and Iran are all trading with one another? And they're moving away from the dollar. Do we end up at, like, is the dollar system actually supported by the petrodollar? And we've had quite a few experts come on the show and say, nope, the U.S. dollar is king shit. There's so much debt denominated in dollars and there's no other alternative that could possibly exist. Like the dollar is the gold standard when it comes to currency. And so there's nothing to fear. Uh, people are, there's always going to be demand for dollars. We've heard that. We've also heard uh, wise men going uh, from all the way up to Gene Epstein saying that the petrodollar is not really the core uh, the core of where the U.S. dollar gets its value. We're going to give a really broad stroke. And then I promise I got an expert for you guys. I do have an expert here. Um, the petrodollar theory is essentially uh, in order for there to be demand for dollars, there needs to be some sort of a guaranteed redeemability. So, for example, Part of what gives the U.S. dollar its value is you can always pay your taxes with your U.S. dollars. So like any other currency, you know, I might get stuck in a situation where nobody wants it, even Bitcoin. I can end up in a situation. I love my Bitcoin. Some other uh, libertarians love their Bitcoin. Everyone else decides that they don't like their Bitcoin. Uh, every store in the world goes, you know what? This thing lost too much of its value. I don't want it. And all of a sudden I'm trading Bitcoins for pennies with other people and I can't really do anything with it. But with the U.S. dollar, no matter what, I can pay my taxes with it. So I know that that is guaranteed and built in that there will be demand by the U.S. government for my dollars. And so I'll be able to go spend it at least with the government. And then if every single if if contracts all around the world are also forcibly priced in dollars, then at least there's that demand for dollars. So now businesses, which is the petrodollar theory, businesses have to hold on to dollars in order. Uh, well, bigger things uh, like, you know, companies and countries buy oil. And so they're forced to have reserves so that they can go purchase the oil. So at least there's that amount of demand for the dollar, which maybe keeps the entire system alive. And so with that, we'll bring on our expert specifically to discuss the petrodollar. Um, 
Gary Richide, author. It is a of a twisted history of the United States. A pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Robbie. What's shaking? Did I did I do a decent job introing the petrodollar segment? Yeah, you hit all the basics. Uh, it's even more nefarious and underhanded than that, I would argue. And it goes back to a, a few instances that took place after uh, Nixon unpegged the dollar from gold. And that was, in, of course, in 1971, in August of 1971. So, wow. the, yeah, think about that. The response of which was, of course, four nations believing they could no longer see what he did was he closed the gold window. Mr. So no longer. Sorry, Mr. Gary. You know, yeah. you know, we uh, we froze up there. So uh, actually, oh. hilariously, the second you started talking, I, I might have frozen on my end. I don't know if it was my end or your end. OK, but let's first start with. Um, yeah, I guess uh, exactly where you started with the general petrodollar scheme. And then if you could and then we'll look into whether or not that's really what gives the dollar its power. So I hand it back to you. You started with Nixon. Yeah, you did a good you did a good summary. And. Let's just go a little bit deeper and then explain some events that further complicated things. The first of which was literally just again. I think it's frozen, frozen, freezing on your end. Oh, no, come on. Fuck, fucking optimal, my friend. We, I, I got to get I got to get some myself some Starlink and put it up on the building. And then I can start putting Elon Musk on blast on Twitter every single time. I'll be like, are you working for the CIA too? That every time I delve into the good stuff, my internet shuts down. All right. Hopefully <laughs> All right. that doesn't happen again. All right. I well, hand it I, back to you. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed. All right. Okay. So 71, Nixon takes the dollar off the gold standard, which means he closed the gold window. So no longer could foreign governments exchange their dollar assets for gold. Because what, let's put it in the proper historical context, the United States had just, and was still fighting the Vietnam War. And what the Vietnam War was, and you'll remember at the same time, what the goal of the Lyndon Johnson administration was, was to fight a war on poverty through the Great Society programs, which entailed massive domestic spending, while also fighting a, a foreign war. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was so nuts as to say, he said this to his cabinet all the time, he wanted to bring the New Deal to the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. That's fucking nuts. Okay. So the massive expenditure meant that there was no longer enough gold in the treasury to redeem all the dollarized assets that foreign countries wanted to. And when Nixon did finally close the gold window and say, no, we're not going to be able to redeem it for $35 an ounce of gold. Well, then all these other countries, the Swiss, the French, the Germans, all decided to essentially buck the dollar's status as the reserve currency. And rampant inflation started to tick up, of course, as the dollar was no longer pegged to a real asset any longer. Okay. So all of this is coming together. And in 1973, you have this war between the Arab states and Israel, the Yom Kippur War, and it further intensified inflation. Oil costs started going through the roof. So what Nixon did to really establish the, what we call the petrodollar, or historian and economist William Clark called the petrodollar, is he had his then secretary of the treasury, his name was William Simon, Fly in July of 1974. Gary, I, yeah. Sorry, I'm going to pause you for one second. Uh, this is going to have to actually come through. You and cool. All right, everybody, we are back, and uh, I kicked my modem really good. I, I I gave it a stern talking to. I kicked it, and I said, "Fucking come on, Gary <laughs> Richard, author of a twisted history of the United States, is giving us a lesson here. So fucking work. We we need our education. So Gary, I hand it back to you." You were talking well, to us about the Yom Kippur War and why this was the Jews' fault. So well, I give it back to you. Proof, yeah, Robbie, all the proof we need that the CIA is shutting us down is right when we start talking about the petrodollar. Your yeah. comes out, right? It hears it. I, the algorithm. I was talking about that earlier in the episode, that there's enough NSA monitoring that the global elites are not concerned. They, they, yeah. they know what's up unless it's a freak occurrence. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we left off talking about rising prices in the United States, especially in oil. And... What Nixon did in 1974, as the U.S. economy was essentially in freefall and the dollar was being crushed, especially by other currencies, 
was he sent his then Secretary of the Treasury, um, William Simon. He flew him all the way to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And there he was tasked, this Secretary of the Treasury, with getting further assurances from the Saudi king, Faisal at the time, that not only would the kingdom denominate all purchases of oil from Saudi Arabia in dollars, thus essentially removing the gold peg and replacing it with oil as a means by which to, to place valuation in the dollar and give it utility because every foreign country would then have to purchase oil from Saudi Arabia in dollars. But furthermore, he gave the Saudi king assurances that they would be able to use this new wealth and largesse of having the United States purchase and other Western European and modernized nations purchase all this oil from Saudi Arabia and OPEC in dollars, the Saudis would then pull, or I'm sorry, push all of those dollarized assets into buying U.S. treasuries. See, so it's to stabilize further the dollar's value and to then finance all of the continued enormous expenditure, both domestic and foreign, of the U.S. government through purchase of U.S. treasuries. And why the king go for it? Ah, here's why did he go for it? Excellent question. Yeah. That's the perfect question to follow up and lead into. Saudi Arabia and the and the Saud, the House of Saud, wanted to be and emerge as the major power within the Middle East. Right. How do you do that? Well, you become enormously wealthy through this pact with the United States. Oh, and then Simon guaranteed that not only would the Saudis be able to or purchase all these treasuries and bypass, interestingly enough, they'd have to bypass the competitive market. So they'd have the like, think of it like the first round pick of how many treasuries they would buy. Okay. Okay. According, uh, so that even before, like, for example, Japan or uh, another state, Great Britain could purchase treasuries, the Saudis would be first in line in a sense. But no one else okay. was told this, by the way, this was all secretive. So they would, they would then use that money to finance, again, U.S. expenditure, but the Saudis would also get special connections and use those dollarized assets to purchase weaponry okay. from Raytheon, from McDonnell Douglas, from U.S. war manufacturers, you see? Thus, Saudi Arabia became a military power as a result of this petrodollar arrangement. Here's where it gets really shady, okay? What was not revealed until 2016, and there was an intrepid reporter at Bloomberg named Andrea Wong who wrote a whole article about this untold story about the petrodollar arrangement. By the way, it was sort of buried at the time. So in my recent article on Mises Institute, on the Mises Wire, I kind of resurrected it, but it's really essential to understand. Not only did Simon secure this continual arrangement of dollarizing petro assets or, or sales and purchases, but he guaranteed the Sauds that they would have these things called special add-ons. And what the add-ons were was that through essentially a money laundering scheme, the Saudis would be able to purchase uh, treasuries, not just through their own um, treasury, but through uh, foreign governments and then entities that they founded in, for example, the United States, Western Europe, and throughout the world. And those add-ons would not be tallied in the official register why of, is that? Who's, of who is purchasing that? treasuries. Now, you might say, well, why yeah. were they so secretive about this? Well, right. think about it for a moment. Think about the time. If it was seen that the Saudis were purchasing inordinate, enormous sums of U.S. treasuries, thus financing U.S imperial activity, right? Supporting right. Israel and furthermore, uh, funding all of the U.S. welfare spending that was going on at the time. Well, that doesn't play in the Islamic world, right? Right. The, in, immediately, the Sauds, they were always fearful, they still are, of a revolution against them because they're not recognized as truly religious leaders. They're seen as secular dictators. Right. If, if all of that was unveiled that they were purchasing these enormous amounts of U.S. treasuries. By the way, within four years, even on the official register, the Saudis owned about 20% of U.S. Treasury debt. 
So they were, but then when you take on the add-ons and all of these, kind of, as I said, they're money laundering schemes by which to finance American uh, expenditure, you look into it and it really gets into, for example, how can the Saudis fund an enormous new golf tour? Well, it's in large part because of these arrangements. Um, how can they wash this money? Well, it's it's through these different uh, means by which they're able to purchase treasuries without any acknowledgement of it. And then therefore, the rest of the, of the Islamic world doesn't really know of the extent of the cooperation between the Saudi regime and the United now, States. What does front-running treasuries help you? Like, if you got first access to buy treasuries... Um, hmm. Like, I understand front-running a stock because, you know, yeah. you could basically pump and dump it. But with the Treasury, I don't really – like, having first access, I don't see the financial advantage. I'm not well, saying it doesn't I, exist. I just not – I'm not, like, instantly recognizing it. Well, the, well, it's a financial advantage in the sense that you get – when, for example, um, you want uh, – when yields go up. Right. right. When yields go up and, and you get the first shot at purchasing – remember, there's a limited amount of Treasuries. That are right. auctioned off on a semi, I think it's semi-monthly basis, uh, or bi-monthly basis. But isn't this? I I, I got to point out this is kind of working in the opposite way that the Saudis buying the treasuries are creating demand for the treasuries, which would then lower the yield of the treasury. So part part of the scheme here, it, it it's more of like a. It's more of like if you looked at it like a stock company where it's like, all right, I got to figure out how to pump up my stock price. And they go, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go interact with the Saudis and I'm going to force everybody to essentially buy like Saudis only going to sell you their product with my stock. So now mm -hmm. I've got built in that the stock value is going up. And then I guess, well, I guess that's the buy in. And then I'm giving them the first right to basically purchase additional shares in the stock via the treasury. Right. And so and they're also being being able to ride the wave of the asset price going up. I guess that makes right. sense in that regard. Right. And remember, they essentially right. get first right to sell it, too. So. Right. So, the, so, so the Saudis are. Yeah, right, very, very much so. And remember, the Saudis, uh, for example, when in it was like 2015, 2016, the price of oil plummeted. Right. The Saudis were very angry about that. Right. Angry about that. So what did they do? They threatened to sell all the treasuries, right. right? So then therefore the financing that comes through that would not be available. It might cause again, a, essentially a, a dump. of Right. Those, all right. So these are kind of two different, um, two different questions mm -hmm. in your opinion. So now we're in a, we're in a place where uh, petrodollar, uh, what we're looking at basically 50 years ago uh, that, uh, you know, um, uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard, right? So, yes, so 50 years ago, it could be that like the petrodollar essentially the U.S. the U.S. dollar would have collapsed because we went off of gold. Nixon figured out a scheme to figure out like, okay, well, what what will have the built-in redeemability instead of gold? He works mm -hmm. out this deal with the Saudis. It keeps the dollar as kind of number one, so everyone keeps using it. But at this point, we've evolved way past that that we no longer need that built-in redeemability because there's so much debt or basically demand for dollars that the petrodollar aspect isn't like, in other words, it could be that historically that the like it was a business uh, relationship that we needed 50 years ago, because without that we would have collapsed, but now we've been able to grow off of the fact that we had that we don't need it anymore. And if you took it away, it wouldn't have that much of an impact, or it could be that, it's still a massive amount of the demand for dollars is the fact that this contract is still priced in dollars. I believe Gene Epstein argued that it's so easy to convert money that like it doesn't have that big of an impact. Uh, but I hand it back to you for uh, for your perspective on this. Gene's right about the convertibility of money in these uh, programs like the SWIFT that in which you just engage in international exchange and the like. However, I would argue that if you look at the nations that have challenged the petrodollar arrangement, let's think of them, Iran, Russia, um, these, these countries, what, I'm sorry. I think Libya is a big one from what I understand, because right. they well, they threatened to sell for gold and they're like, U.S. went, nope. Yeah, precisely. Or think about, for example, Saddam Hussein in 2000, he got out of the oil for food program and then announced that he would purchase 
uh, or allow for the purchase of Iraqi oil reserves using the euro. What was the U.S. regime's reaction to all of these things? Absolute uh, demonization. Uh, I mean, to the point of, of course, stirring up weapons of mass destruction claims against Saddam Hussein, and he's ousted finally, right, through the Iraq war. So what I would argue, therefore, is you know that the petrodollar arrangement is indeed still at least valued to some degree as it props up the dollar's reserve currency status. And that's still important for, for the, to the U.S. regime because all the nations that challenge the system are then, of course, deemed as parts of the axis of evil and immediately targeted by the U.S. regime. Okay. And then uh, this past week, it, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, these the stories were kind of coming out of, is this going to be a problem for the U.S. dollar? Um, we've got more uh, more of Russia trading directly with, um, uh, with India. Um, we've got more oil contracts now being priced in Chinese. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it no? Is it, isn't the yuan? It's the yuan or the renminbi. Yeah. Okay. Fine. And same, but basically, uh, China currency instead of U.S. dollar. Um, mm -hmm. it, now, and I'm going to talk about this in a bit. We've got uh, Israel's attacking Iran, and it seems like we're headed a little bit more towards a Iran, Russia, India maybe China block uh, right. versus not necessarily versus everyone else, but maybe at least a split kind of economy type situation where that's team one and we're team two, or you can see us as team one, they're team two, uh, but a little bit of a splintering. Uh, if such an event were to occur, or at least those people were to challenge the U S currency with a gold back currency, uh, I don't know. Do you, do, you, do you forecast that there could be like a doomsday scenario here for the U.S. dollar or that's just kind of um, conspiracy or la la land thinking? Because I, I mean, you've got the somewhat of a finance tie in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, well, it, it could happen. I, I would argue that it's it's definitely a possibility. So have you heard of this thing called the milkshake theory? No, but I do like milkshakes. So I'm I know, on board. Me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah. So uh, there's this. A uh, theory that's around in financial and economic theoretical circles called the milkshake theory. And that's when when people and nations, especially countries that are expending enormous uh, you know, GDP to debt ratios, they look for credit wherever they think it's most readily available. And so just like when you put your straw into a milkshake, you're not really concerned too much after you get through the whipped cream layer as to what you're going to get. They're just looking for credit. And it kind of, when it gets sucked up through the straw, all the ingredients come in at once, right? Right. But the main ingredient is, so long as the main ingredient is the dollar, that's, it's going to still have a, 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 an allure to it. And there's going to be dollarized, or uh, there's going to be dollar demand, as you had, had stated. Right. However, what happens when that, you, you just throw out the milkshake altogether. And- Remember the nations of which you spoke, Iran, Turkey, India, <clears throat> China, Russia, these are nations of great and enormous, not just populations, but land masses. And beyond that, enormous natural resources. I mean, take the EV market. I mean, the, the type of materials that you need, you need nickel and, and zinc and neon and all these things to build these batteries, these complex batteries, semiconductors, the same thing. I'll, the the two major exporters, I believe, of nickel and, and zinc and, and neon, which are needed for the batteries and lithium too, are Ukraine and Russia. So if, if these nations are going to forge a new economic union of sorts, not unlike the European Union or the common market that existed in Europe after World War II, then that would be a true threat to dollar supremacy. So you think this could go sour? This could this could go sour, as to, and I'm going to be a good Austrian here and say right. the degree that those nations ally and create a type of hard money currency, by which eventually developing nations outside of the the sphere of U.S. Western European dominance start wanting to have those have their own 
um, natural materials or raw materials purchased in those in that denomination, whether it's the mamimbi, the ruble, uh, the rupee, whatever it's going to be, or some semblance of all of them. Well, therefore, the dollar loses its allure. It's part of the dollar's allure was its stability. All right. So for those interested in learning more about the petrodollar, what are the Gary Richide recommendations for uh, for doing your homework on the topic? Yeah, there are a couple books that you could read. I mean, I, I have a, a shorter article on uh, Mises Wire. It's entitled, uh, well, at, at first I titled Kish Me Once, Kish Me Twice. And the reason <laughs> I did that was because there's this, uh, the Iranians set up their own essential mercantile exchange in this island of Kish in the Persian Gulf. And of course, that just incurred more of the wrath of Israel and the United States and the like. But it's uh, entitled The Petrodollar uh, Saudi Access and Why Washington Hates Iran. Uh, so you can take a look at that. It has a reference to the Andrea Wong part, uh, article I, I referenced. And then also there are a couple of books. Uh, the first is by William Clark. Look him up. And then the second is this one called The Hidden Hand of American Hegemony, Petrodollar Recycling and International Markets. And that's by David Spiro. So if you're really interested in that, you can also look at my, um, my website where the article is listed. And I have other stuff on economics, finance, and the petrodollar and history and like that. That's howlwc.com. And then, of course, uh, your incredible book, A Twisted History of the United States. And uh, anything else uh, you want? I'll give you the closing remarks if there's anything else you uh, wanted people to know about the topic. No, just I would be much more leery, perhaps even more so than the great Gene Epstein and others who say that the dollar supremacy is real and going to continue in near perpetuity. I think it's much more on thin ice. So keep that in mind. And you can read about the situation which we find ourselves where we're reliant upon such arrangements after 1945, because we were really living in and through the symptoms of the revolution that was. You had the Great Depression, which created this planned economy and therefore World War II, which really cemented it. And then we're kind of living with the symptoms ever since the revolution was. You mean uh, that since World War II, we're kind of have just a more socialized uh, capitalist system. Right. We're, we're living through a planned economy of pseudo capitalism. Right. In which all these arrangements from monetary policy, finance, expenditure, war and empire. It's all just a continuation of this notion that we could fight. Remember, remember, Robbie, what we were told? What was the one thing you remember from World War Two? When we studied in history, like in our history classes, oh, how amazing it was that the United States was able to fight a two-front war. Do you remember that? And we won. Well, right. first of all, that's questionable. But we've never abandoned that sense that we could fight a gigantic war against poverty and drugs and all these domestic ills with enormous expenditure that's all socialistic. And we could also spread liberal democracy to the rest of the world through massive military expenditure. Right. We were under this illusion that we could still do that and it's bankrupting us all. Well, it's also, I mean, now as an adult, I remember the big propaganda was uh, World War II got us out of the Great Depression uh -huh. because now we're spending all this money and we're running the factories, the factories are running and there's jobs. But if you just take a step back and you're like, all right, if, if government spending running factories makes money, so why not run the factories uh, for roads or why not run the factories for infrastructure? Or why not just run the factories? Like you could just literally run the factories and just go outside and then burn it because like there's nothing that like if, if literally, I mean, if what you're spending the money is on is a bomb, you're literally blowing up the thing that you made. That's what that is what it is. Like you might as well build something in the factory, bring it into the parking lot and just light it on fire and go, hey, this was productive because now these people work and they had jobs. And I think it's the old milton friedman of just pay people to go dig ditches and and then you can have a new crew come out and fill in the ditches and then pretend like that somehow is productive for society it, it only takes yeah yeah his famous quip friedman's favorite uh, famous quip was well uh, why are you having all these people why don't you use the bulldozer and they said well we, if we use the bulldozer then all these people with the shovels won't have jobs right and then friedman said well instead of giving them shovels give them spoons right right, right because then they right. can work longer yeah, yeah and, then, and then to draw in Mises, Mises had a great quote, uh, war, war economics and war prosperity is like the prosperity that a hurricane and an earthquake brings. Does that mean right. you, want, you want a hurricane and earthquake to destroy everything so as to destroy that value that was already built up so that you have to reallocate resources 
to build it up again or create something new? Of course not. You'd rather have the already established value of the thing, the infrastructure or whatever it is, and then divert or direct those resources into new and uh, what we might call entrepreneurial energies or innovations, not to rebuild what was already existent. All right. Gary, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. I can't recommend enough the book, A Twisted History of the United States, and uh, it's most easily just found on Amazon, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you can also buy it from the website, and I'm happy to sign copies and send them out to everybody. Hell yeah. All right, pleasure. And now uh, we're going to get back into, I don't know why I saluted. That was weird. But we're going to get back into um, the news topics that I had. Um, so kind of a disjointed episode, but, you know, you, you we're, we're getting all caught up here. You guys will know everything that's going on in the world. Getting some education. All right. We're going to skip Social Security. We'll come back to that tomorrow. Already mentioned the Iran-Israel bombing. It's just getting a little bit creepier that it does feel like we're ramping more towards a pretty big war as opposed to just de-escalating. Just calling up Putin and go, hey, you, you want Eastern Ukraine? Enjoy it. Whatever you need. You need something in Eastern Ukraine? Just, just take it. You guys can have it, and then we, you know, we can go back to having normal energy prices, as opposed to having Israel going, "Oh, all right, we gotta help out the Ukrainians and go bomb stuff in Iran," and the Americans go, "Hey, we're not fighting you, but we are gonna ship our tanks across the world, and please don't blow them up, because then if you blow them up, that's like you're attacking us. You gotta wait till they're actually in Ukraine. It's like, oh, what a game that is. You gotta wait till the ships are actually in Ukraine, and once they're in Ukraine, then you can attack them." But before they cross the line into Ukraine to attack you, those, you're, you're not allowed to touch those. Doesn't seem to be flowing in the right direction. All right, let's hit a couple more news topics. Crushed bug additive is now included in pizza, pasta, and cereal across the EU. This was an article uh, from Zero Hedge. And, you know, let, 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 let's start by uh, we can strongman it. Crickets are apparently unbelievably nutritious. I mean, we've been wasting our time with farms. We've been wasting our time, uh, you know, with wheat. We all these developments in uh, in in farming and otherwise, we could have just been eating crickets the entire time. Apparently, the most nutritious thing. And by the way, there's something weird to me that like the Bible warns against eating bugs, and like intuitively, we're all like, this is gross. But then I guess at the end of the day, I eat a protein bar. So I guess if you uh, like, it's almost like uh, it's like you don't think of this one as kind of being science versus God. In the same way that, like, they almost claim that, uh, like, the trans situation. It's like there's a lot of Bible themes that seem to be coming up in our lives uh, where science seems to be taking the other side. So here you got the celebrities, and they're selling us on, hey, you got these animals. You've got these the wholesome food that we've been eating for our entire lives, but that stuff's bad for the environment. But you know what would be better for the environment? And, and then you even get... um. Uh, What's his name? Uh, the Iron Man actor. Why am I so bad with names when I need him? But you guys all know who I'm talking about. And he's up there and he's talking about larva. Like it's uh, like it's like uh, unique grapes that are going into a wine. Oh, and I was eating this thing made of the French larva. You're talking about fucking maggots, dude. You're talking about eating worms and maggots. But yet you're, you make it seem like a distinguished gentleman. And that's why your face all of a sudden looks like you're 110 years old. Uh, but here you have it. So, you know, the global elites, they're out there. And instead of us eating delicious steaks, they want us to get onto this bug diet. And their claim is we've overlooked this. I mean, the same as modern medicine has come around and given you incredible solutions to your medical problems. We can solve the, We can solve what you're eating. Everyone's getting fat and diabetic. And it's because you're not eating crushed bugs. So let us help you out. And by the way, there, I mean, there's so much shit chemicals in our food. I mean, just randomly adding the fact that you've got shredded crickets into something. I wouldn't recognize that ingredient. Is that a worse ingredient than phosphoric acid, BLT or whatever, G917? Go look at the ingredients on most of the fucking shit. And I, I'm, I, I like eating like gas station fake healthy food like Lenny and Larry's cookies. I don't know why I, I'm done with those too. Cause sometimes those give me the worst farts. Sometimes you don't even really want to eat food cause you're about to be on a plane and then you eat one of those things. And then you're over your fart quota within the first five minutes. You got, you got everyone on the planes looking around trying to figure out who's farting. And then you point to the person that came on with the full plate of like eggs. You're like, dude, you're, we're, we're taking a flight. You're going to come on here with the burrito. And then you hold up your little Lenny you're like, look at me. I'm just eating vegan, no milk, no dairy cookies. I'm not the one farting up this plane. 
But then you, you go look at the ingredients and there's a million things that I don't recognize. And so I can't like, so on the one side, I guess if you're crushing up some crickets and on paper, you're, you're adding more nutritional value and I can't taste the crickets. I mean, I guess good for you. You snuck, you snuck those crickets past me, but then there's some other part of me goes, don't fucking feed me crickets. I don't want any crickets in my life. That seems disgusting. And then it's also just odd that there is a bit of a Bible tie-in, that the Bible was all like, hey, don't be eating bugs. Uh, Biden to end COVID-19 national emergencies on May 11th, ushering in a host of changes. The uh, pandemic's over, but we got to wait till after winter. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're they're still forecasting for winter, but they know in May that they're going to be able to wind this thing down. The emergency is not over yet. But in three months from now, we can predict that it will no longer be an emergency because that's the way that emergencies work. You can you can kind of predict the coming and going of the emergency. So actively, we're still in the emergency. Nothing's changed, but we're getting ready. Then in May, it will no longer uh, be an emergency situation. All right. And now we've got Donald Trump. He's out there. He wants to everyone. To, I'm so much better than Biden at eating ice cream. OK, you see him. The guy. He can barely even lick it. I, I'm such a better licker. Okay, look at look at the way I order my ice cream. So we got all these presidents throughout there somehow. They live to a million years old. They, 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 they fucking eat junk food all day. And they still got the energy to make better decisions for all of us and the world decisions. I mean, they can't even make a good decision about I remember, God bless. These are people of higher genetics than me that they can be eating ice cream in the afternoon at age 76 year old. Somehow, Donald Trump just looks like the biggest eight-year-old. He's just like an eight-year-old at all times, in in like a, like his like his parent just dressed him up for a school assembly, um, and uh, tried to comb his hair. It's like the parent tried to comb the hair, make it look nice, but within three minutes, the kid's like this, and now it's all shaggy again. It's like that's what he looks like. He looks like a giant seven or eight-year-old getting ready for school pictures. And uh, here he is. He's about to place himself a nice, big, fat ice cream order. And uh, what's shocking to me is the way that the lady working at the counter reacts to seeing Donald Trump. And it's a good insight into just how different other people are than you and me. And uh, the need for because I travel through the country, I got to start somehow going to more out there places and just talking to the good, wholesome people of this country to get a better understanding of where they're coming from. Because the same way as you see some people in masks and you're like, I don't understand how you could still be wearing this. I don't understand how you could still be putting this on your kid. I don't understand how you could be a news anchor who's had four booster shots and talking about how you got myocarditis because of COVID. Well, the same way that that makes no sense to me, this also makes no sense to me. And let's give it a watch. Thank you very much. So you recommend his food, If your prayers work, why not pray for a better job? Why not that? I mean, you really believe in the power of prayer and the power of prayer to make a change. You're gonna waste, you're gonna waste, you're gonna call in your favor. And and your favor is going to be that things should be better for Donald J. Trump. Is his middle name Jay? I don't even know. I don't know why I just threw that in. But how how absolutely insane is that? That this is the degree by which people still believe in Donald Trump, their savior, the erector of quarter built walls, the man, the initiator of the vaccines, uh, the the man who uh, uh, continued government spending and to enlarge in our debt. This man could still save us. And if they just didn't steal elections from him and the Lord Jesus would help assist Donald Trump to be reinstated to his rightful position of a uh, president, which was taken from him wrongfully. And then he abandoned the supporters who showed up for him on January 6th and took a wall and took pictures. Um, but isn't it amazing how many people like how many ladies like this exist in the country or maybe you're being suckered. Maybe this is just a full uh, fledged photo opportunity. And they found the one lady and they told her beforehand, you got to grab Donald Trump's hand and you got to pray with him. All right. Here's another video I got for you guys. Oh, no. 
This is from Zero Hedge. Watch Rand Paul warns over classification being used to cover up COVID lab leak. I'm going to read two paragraphs. The intelligence community does, does this. They're talking about over classifications. Does this. They have more power and we have less power. The center continued, adding, I've long argued that Congress needs to know more and the American people needs to know more about what the CIA does, what the FBI does, because we can't oversee them. We can't have oversight and reform it if we don't know what they're doing. They avoid oversight by classifying things. And often there's a policy decision, like, for example, with COVID. We need to know if COVID came from a lab so we can prevent this from happening again. Some of this is being stemmed by the intelligence agencies classifying things that need to be classified because that's what you do. You fuck up and you just go, oh, yeah, that's classified. Well, we need to look into what happened when that building. Oh, I classified it. Well, we need to know what happened to the funds. It looks like all the funds from. Oh, yeah, I classified it. That's classified information. You mean all the, the, the money we spent on, on hookers? Yeah, that's classified. That, that government spending is classified. Don't look at that. All right, that is our episode. We will be back later this week with a brand new one, probably Friday. I try and do the days that we don't record part of the problem. So maybe tomorrow I'll just be off. Maybe I'll masturbate a bunch at home. Maybe that's what I'll do. I finally have a day at home to take care of my prostate health. That's all I'm going to tell people. Hey, what are you up to this weekend? I'm just investing in prostate health. I'm really, uh, I'm really concerned about my prostate, and so I'm going to try and relieve as much pressure as I can. Because that, that I'm I'm a I'm a prostate health enthusiast. Join me, the Rob Bernstein Prostate Health Enthusiast Club of America, that doesn't allow for young boys, 18, 18 and over, can join. All right, that's our episode. Uh, but before we call it sheathunderwear.com, right now, go get yourself the most comfortable underwear that's ever graced the balls of man. Sheathunderwear.com. Use promo code RYM. You're going to get yourself 20% off. And we're coming up on a new month, so we're going to have Bobby the Bank on for our monthly episodes. Hopefully, talking about chat GPT or whatever. This man, I write copy for him. He's already trying to replace me with robots. So we're going to have to find out about how many of our jobs can be replaced by these chat GDP robots. And then, of course, YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo. Or you can go to YoDelta.com. Use promo code RYM. Get yourself twenty percent off. Yeah, they got they got the 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 smokables, the vape pens. You ain't got to smell like weed, but you can be high if you're over the age of twenty one. Uh, or they got the gummies, and then you can get fucked up. All right, that's our episode. Have a great day. And um, YouTube University, you can go uh, follow his channel because he's offering free prostate massages. So if you're interested in a free prostate massage, um. YouTube University, where can they find you to make good on your offer for um, free prostate massages? All right. And then we got Jonathan Greenlee. You can't have a true democracy and try to have secrets at the same time. I'll take that. Got another comment. Isn't it like two lives of crickets per day needed to maintain weight in those African studies? I don't know. That seems like a lot of crickets. We use bugs for red food diet, which cause a lot of health issues in children. So there's that too. Look at that. We're, we're already eating buds. We didn't even know it, but we've been eating bugs the whole time. All right, we're done. Everyone have a great